0: So this evening we'll explore the sixth factor of awakening, the sixth factor of enlightenment, as we've been going along uh, over this month of October, exploring each of the factors one by one. (coughs) And we've arrived at number six, which is concentration. And I'd like to begin the discussion this evening with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, and panya, which translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. So virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight, these three form the branches, three branches uh, of our mental development that are essential, actually, to all forms and all schools of Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart and mind, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through our direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, (coughs) and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insight, final liberating wisdom. And as I think each of you know, concentration plays an important uh, role in the Buddhist teaching. It's obviously one of the seven factors of enlightenment, those being mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties or the five spiritual powers, and those being faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana Insight meditation practice without the support of concentration is like, he said, it's like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without the protection of a bodyguard. In the Buddha's words, uh, as he often did uh, in his uh, teachings, he would start with a question and then he would go on to answer his own question. So, this is uh, from his uh, teachings. If concentration, samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All greed is abandoned. And he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. So concentration, uh, often translated as samatha, concentration, meditation, and vipassana, insight, meditation practice in particular alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice and all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue ethical behavior and its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue, as they deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering and confusion What brings dis-ease? Ethical behavior, or ethical discipline, ethical practice, is the basis for developing concentration, the basis for developing samatha. The Sanskrit term that's used is samadhi, and the Pali word is samatha. And it refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila or ethical behavior affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our long-standing habits of attraction, which show up in our experience as greed and clinging and expectation and attachment, and our long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry and resistance and anger and fear, confusion, doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering, with the Pali word for that being uh, samsara, these habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberating the heart and the mind. The true nature of things, what's often called ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, Massachusetts, New Mexico, Afghanistan, dogs, Thoughts: rain, snow, sleet we had this afternoon. Uh, Canada, New York. feelings, one's hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, Delta Airlines, etc., etc, etc, etc. Are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which, and this is very important, all of which are rooted in mindfulness, which is the first factor of awakening. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, coming from the Kimata Sutta, from the Nikaya, <clears throat> And in this sutta, Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha responds. Ananda says to the Buddha, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering, to the consummation of arhantship, And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it is owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and sometimes from some of our most difficult experiences, and sometimes from what we deem to be our mistakes, And also, as well, learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. So we could say that purification of mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, concentration, this sixth factor of awakening. The unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in and gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily pretty dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that it's reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. This notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with the strengthening of our ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in from it, waft into it from any of the sense doors or from our own unconscious. So in light of this we can ask ourselves the question once in a while, does my mind control me? Or do I control my mind? So for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things about practice is that it offers us the rem- the uh, the capacity or the practice or the possibility of a very focused Attention, focusing on our chosen object. And it's a skill that we can learn, like any other skill that we can learn by practice, repeated practice, patient repeated practice, and by gradual development. The Vasudhi Magga the profoundly detailed. <coughs> Buddhist treatise on the process of purification uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in creating pottery on a potter's wheel is this one. And even if you've never tried to make something on a potter's wheel, I think. You can understand what's being shared here. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there, with a strong and yet very relaxed focus of attention, mind and body. Staying, sustaining the attention, sustaining the energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. And then the potter with a continuing focus of clear, connected, and relaxed attention with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration with the mind the heart learning to move into a very focused experience of deepening concentration the power of a clear (coughs) relaxed and focused mind a concentrated mind brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again it restimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. So we could say that a, a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm which is really quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because of our exploration this evening, being primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think it would be helpful to uh, for us to explore and learn uh, a little bit about Uh, more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And a quote from uh, uh, B. Alan Wallace, who is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortion of the earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states that accompany the development of concentration, those wholesome states being calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, equanimity, these states cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So a simple example... If you're trying to concentrate on a meditation subject, maybe the breath, the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils, at the anapana spot or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or maybe the breath moving in and out through the whole body. If you're anxious and if you're filled with worry, if you're filled with expectation during this process, calm, and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation actually enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, which means, in this case, to not be seduced by thought. I often say thought is the most seductive human experience. People have argued with me. No, it's sex. Say, no, it's thought. <laughs> Watch your own mind. <laughs> One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem so very important in the moment. And I think it's really important to note here that it's not about kicking out thought. It's not about booting out thought. Kicking, it, kicking out and booting out is rooted in aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is atten- intended. This is really the first and and, may, and the, maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of this practice of developing concentration. The mind of course can get lost in myriad mundane and also in seeming lofty thoughts and actions. And thinking whatever it is, is really, really important right now. I had uh, uh, such an experience during a, a three-month retreat uh, that I was sitting that was uh, devoted to the development of concentration that I sat with the Venerable uh, Powak a number of years ago. <clears throat> For the first week or so of uh, this particular retreat, each day after lunch I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. And I would do this by taking <clears throat> two or three different Loose teas and mixing them together in a, in a tea ball and then uh, putting them in my cup of hot water. A very important and seemingly very necessary treat that I needed, that I certainly wanted, at least. Well, towards the end of that week, I noticed a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. It had been sitting there all along, but uh, the mind had not uh, connected with it at all, not even seen it, until that very moment. So after it was seen, the thought came up, hmm, do I really need this? Is, is all this fancy tea preparation seemingly, uh, and seeming need, is this really, really important? Well, the answer came pretty quick, no, no. It's not really at all important. It's just merely a habitual distraction. So from that day on, uh, I just simply made a cup of tea with the tea bag that was sitting in the box uh, in front of me and drank it with pleasure. What happened after that was what was really important. Quite spontaneously at times, throughout the next three months, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer, almost always, after a while maybe almost 100%, but not right at first, uh, was quite clearly and then more and more obviously, no. 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 And I would then just simply let go of what, whatever it was at that point. I mean, it didn't happen instantly. It took a while. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires us, us the, that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt the experiences that are classically called the hindrances. Classically, the development of concentration is described as the purification of the mind. So again, quoting the Buddha, as he said, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm and joy and tranquility and blissful happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice are clearly manifest, unwholesome mind states are temporarily, in those moments, completely eliminated. As well as considerably weakened over the long term. Particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. So, we'll take a bit of a look now <clears throat> at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address uh, different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and also hinder the blossoming of insight, of wisdom. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind and the heart a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and uh, applying the attention again and again to the object. The Pali word for this is vitaka. And eventually, then establishing the mind establishing the attention on the object, maybe the rising and falling of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the in-and-out breath in the nostril area, this eventually, temporarily eliminates dullness, eventually, temporarily eliminates sleepiness and stiffness. And this can also be said about metta practice, applying the metta phrases, applying the attention... To the metaphrases one by one. The sustained <coughs> application of the mind, <clears throat> the continuous sustained attention on the object. Again, such as the breath, or maybe metaphrase, a metaphrase. In Pali, the word for this is vichara. Eventually, this temporarily eliminates uncertainty and it temporarily eliminates doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, a bright happiness and elation in the mind, resulting from the developing focus and purity of the heart and mind. The Pali word for this is piti, This brings a a delighted interest in and a liking for the object of attention, for something just as simple as a breath, for instance. And with the developing of and a deepening concentration, which results in various degrees of PT, ill will and various degrees of PT, which we can experience uh, as physical sensations usually at first anyways, such as maybe tingling or vibration. And when this develops and deepens, ill will is temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and development of concentration the concentrated state of bliss and contentment, a a sweet kind of easeful happiness. The Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but it's a, a blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees throughout a deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are eventually, completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of a one-pointed focus of a very deeply concentration, concentrated mind, the Pali word for this is ikagata. With this, uh, occurring to varying degrees uh, during the development stages of concentration and developing stages of mindfulness insight practice. This one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive energetic centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, when it's really... Percolating uh, relatively deeply or maybe very deeply uh, after a while, sensuous desire for anything is temporarily inhibited, is at bay. As samadhi or samatha or concentration develops and as it moves along, these states that corrupt the natural purity and the natural luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also includes clinging and self-identification to pleasant experience, as well as other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of these have been clearly let go, have been temporarily abandoned, Have been temporarily relinquished, at that time, one really truly gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha. The Dhamma and the Sangha, and if one has a teacher, to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified to of unho- unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from these states. A great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, and very important, without any attachment, uh, or personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, they're removed. They disappear within the calm and the quiet. They disappear within the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, again, important without any attachment and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And, of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected non-analytic non-analytical sustained mindful presence <clears throat> another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind <clears throat> is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the heart and the mind is very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga, the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion and is often synonymous with greed, with unwholesome desire, with craving, attachment and clinging, all of which are the core causes of our human suffering, the core causes of dukkha. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used uh, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and to protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. with the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen and will be aware of a, a provocative sense input, but will allow these to just roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or aversion. A similar image often used was of the of water rolling off a lotus leaf or water rolling off the feathers of a duck. <clears throat> the nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, We could say there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and that also serve our insight practice. The first of these is what's called kanaka samadhi. That's Pali kanaka samadhi, which translates as momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of our ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to connect clearly with one object, then another object, then another object. One by one, ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, for vipassana practice uh, to happen. The second type or level of concentration is called upachara samadhi or translated as access concentration or sometimes translated as neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or or jhana uh, concentration if one is inclined in that way. And it, um, neighborhood concentration can be reaccessed and used for insight practice. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of absorption or jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. With access concentration or neighborhood concentration... the mind doesn't stay focused on one object as it does at, well, with with jhana concentration not doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects with upachara access concentration the mind is very malleable it's able to move from object to object to object so from this perspective access concentration can be a very helpful and useful uh, uh, approach uh, for and use in practice in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way It's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And during this time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana practice, it's only through insight practice that unwholesome and afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. the development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, in our insight practice, particularly upachara, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment and identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted and investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's not really everyone's inclination or not even everyone's interest. Sometimes it's an interest, but it might not be an inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating Vipassana, a potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. <clears throat> the, the achievement of jhana concentration may and usually does require many months or even many years of single-pointed practice, meditating for many hours each day. And this may be impractical for some people. For others, It may be possible and it may be worthwhile moving towards the discoveries uh, that lie in wait for us as we apply the telescope of Samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the Confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self or not self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, no commentary. No thinking about what's occurring and not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. So in light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. <clears throat> After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it said that the Bodhisatta, bodhisatta Siddhartha Gautama Asked himself, could there not be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to young Siddhartha, young man Siddhartha, and he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth. It was an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly, under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene that was unfolding before him with the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things, nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open, in even, wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves, and he heard the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling and suffering and dying, endlessly going on, beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him and in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to... To take away, as he sat silently, quite still, and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, and it said that he entered the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a very bright, sweet pleasure and joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following up on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisatta became filled with energy and a sureness that this in fact was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for for enlightenment. This was a a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and in his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, the anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact, couldn't be purified or banished or released or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them. Or by trying to live through them by stealing, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or maybe by struggling and trying hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly in extreme ways, have you out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, and even spiritual practices and various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life. And maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did. And thinking, just as he did, that these situations, these fantasies, these activities, these practices or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength is gained. But the light or may be gained, not always, but may be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of liberation, can never be fully seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure, was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That this would never really bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that's secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances, the mental and bodily bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness, greed and clinging. Free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion or doubt, he understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed and clinging and fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact... It points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that is liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha, came to understand that the development of a deep concentration, and in his case, uh, for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in uh, his discourse to his student Sakaka from the Majjhima he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices and that very soon after that he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a bodhi tree. And then he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and now in the Buddha's words, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attained to equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young six-year-old Siddhartha wandered into, so to say, the world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, and nothing to run from. And yet this natural state of a concentrated and undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up and often uh, absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up a mind that clings to what it makes up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility. Keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from, this, from the Buddha, from this great teacher, fall into three currents, three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of samatha, samadhi in Sanskrit, concentration, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of Panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. They carry us to the other side, the side of a peaceful easeful awakened presence the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart an undisturbed mind the current of samatha the development of concentration is a beautiful healing and powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal. That of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And again, some words from B. Allen Wallace. First to say that our practice... um, is about the unification, we could say, of Samatha and Vipassana. And B. Allen Wallace says this about that. The, transformi- the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of Samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of Vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. And so... As awakening beings, here we are today, all of us here in this room, more than 2,500 years later after the story that I've just shared about the Buddha's uh, life uh, took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent open-hearted interest and hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and abiding patience each and all of these wholesome and beautiful qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila samadhi and panya and without a doubt, are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk with a poem, a poem by Mary Oliver, that speaks uh, of of our evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way, and in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique and yet um, moving way. And she calls this, poem or calls this poem, Such Singing in the Wild of Branches. It was spring. And finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his sisters and brothers, and also the trees around them as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we close the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com